You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of Wiley's 2022 National Security Webinar Series. Today's installment will be called Digital Currency and and its National Security Implications. A quick disclaimer before we move forward. This webinar is intended to provide general news about legal developments and should not be construed as providing legal advice or legal opinions. You should consult an attorney for any specific legal questions. The session is also intended for a private audience Comments are not for publication in the media or any other public outlet. The discussion we are having represents our personal views on the subject matter. My name is Steve Obermeyer. I'm a partner in the litigation group here. I do various types of litigation, but uh, two areas of expertise for me are administrative law and national security issues. I'm going to turn it over to my partner, Nazak. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Nizak Nakhtar. I am a partner at Wiley uh, in international trade and co-chair of the National Security Practice. Again, appreciate everybody joining today. Um, We are so uh, privileged to have with us two incredibly brilliant um, guests who know a lot about uh, digital currency, what's happening in the world right now, and the issues to be on the lookout for in the horizon. Uh, to start with, I'd like to introduce uh, my dear friend, the Honorable Eric Bethel. Um, Eric is an incredible global finance professional with experience in both private and public sectors. In 2020, Eric was nominated to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Panama. Previously, he was nominated and confirmed unanimously by the Senate to represent the United States, the World Bank. Mr. Bethel worked as an investment banker and private equity professional before serving in the government, where he focused on emerging markets. He was managing director at Franklin Templeton Investments, where he executed private equity transactions in Latin America. Prior to this, he was he was uh, based in Shanghai, China, as managing partner of Sino Latin Capital and managing director of China Best. Mr. Bethel earned his BS in economics and political science from the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and his MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. If this isn't enough, he speaks Spanish, Portuguese, and Mandarin. And next, I'd also like to introduce um, a, a wonderful, wonderful public service professional, uh, Colin Leach. Uh, Colin is an international trade specialist at the Department of Commerce. Um, he is working on a variety of issues, uh, national security, domestic and competitiveness issues, uh, with particular em- emphasis right now on digital currency. He previously served as a special agent at the U.S. Office of Personal Management, an IT specialist at the Social Security Administration. He's also worked at the House of Representatives and earned his uh Masters from the University of Maryland in Baltimore. Uh, Eric and Colin are champions of uh, American competition, and I, I'd like to turn it over to them. And maybe we'll start with you, Eric. Um, maybe actually, uh, 
turning it over to you and uh, call in for introductory remarks. I think what our audience is going to be particularly interested in is, um, you know, central bank digital currencies. What are these currencies? Um, how are they being used? Are they being used right now? How do they uh, differ from conventional ways that we're using money now? And then what's the difference between uh, central bank digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and anything else you'd like to discuss about the uh, competitive landscape? And then we'll go to uh, Q's and A's. But Eric, over to you. Sure. Uh, hey, everybody. And uh, thanks, Nazak uh, and Steve, for uh, for putting this together. This is really great. Um, and I think this is going to be um, the issue of how everything is digitizing is going to be uh, first and foremost in certainly in the minds of policymakers, as you've seen with the EO. Uh, but it's also going to be very consequential to how we um, live uh, live our lives. So let's let's sort of peel things back for a second. And I'll go from the 100,000 foot perspective uh, down to some more, you know, at, at, to a more granular level. The first is this. Uh, it wasn't that long ago where to watch a movie, you had to actually have this, this, this little box, this thing called a VHS tape, and you stuck it in a machine uh, and you press forward and rewind and play. Uh, and that's how we watched movies. That, of course, became the DVD, which is now streaming. Uh, when I explained to my kids that I, I showed them a VHS tape, you know, it had the little spools and things. And, you know, sometimes the, 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 the magnetic thing would come out and uh, the ribbon. Right. My point is this. Um, everything is becoming digitized and so will money. Right. Uh, and so one day we're going to look back at coins and bills as museum pieces. Now, you might say to yourself, hey, I'm already digitized. Uh, I use Venmo uh, and I use Apple Pay. So, like, what are you talking about? So let's let's sort of set the groundwork for what it is that we're talking about. So let's begin with Venmo uh, and Apple Pay uh, and Cash App and so forth. Uh, these are what you're doing is you're moving a ledger from point A to point B. Uh, so you're it's not it's not it's not actual an actual obligation of the central bank. It's an obligation of Apple Pay, which is then an connected to your bank, which is an obligation of your bank, and then ultimately you trace the chain of custody back to to um, the U.S. government. But if along the way, it, either Apple goes broke or a, or a meteor, you know, an asteroid hits your bank, uh, all of your money is gone. So it's really the movement of a ledger. Uh, and again, if I'm oversimplifying, for those of you that are either macroeconomists or experts in payments, forgive me, I'm I hope not to butcher this, but I'm trying to like get everybody to the same common um, understanding. So that's what that is. Over here, you have Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Uh, and these are decentralized units of value, decentralized assets that are that, that might be used as a medium of exchange. I would argue that they're not really intended or well suited for that, but they're not issued by any government. And over here, you have something called a so-called stable coin, which is, uh, in effect, a private version of money that's pegged to a dollar. So you've got lots of different things going on, and sometimes it gets a little bit confusing. With respect to what a central bank digital currency is, it's nothing more than a dollar reduced to its digital form, issued by the Fed, right? It is a direct obligation of a central bank whether it's in Mexico or the United States or whatever, 
it's just a different representation of a dollar. So you can take a dollar bill and turn it into a QR code, and that is a CBDC at the most basic level. So stable coins are different. Cryptocurrencies are different. Venmo and Zelle are also different. What we're talking about to be to get everybody on the same page is a digital version of the dollar that is legal tender. So, Nazak, to you. Uh, hopefully, that sort of sets the ground, the ground, uh, the ground floor of what we're talking about. That's perfect. Thanks very much. And let's turn it over to Colin. So, um, thanks, Nazak, and uh, thank Eric. Thanks, Eric, also for that really great introduction. Just a few points I'd like to add. So, one thing that you might be saying is like, well, okay, if you're talking about a CBD, a US CBDC, isn't that in effect a government cryptocurrency? And what we need to specify is that cryptocurrency, in a sense, the word crypto there refers to cryptography. You know, whether you're talking about like AES encryption or Bitcoin or others, these are essentially units of value that are produced via mining, generated, and then their value and transaction history is recorded on a blockchain or if you prefer distributed ledger, which essentially operates across nodes, constant cross-checking, majority, majority wins. In contrast with a CBDC, a CBDC need not be on a blockchain. A CBDC could be, would more likely than not be centrally issued. And you could, for a information architecture perspective, put it on a blockchain. There's some reasons why you wouldn't wouldn't do that. Um, the Bank of Sweden has looked at that, for example, with the eKronor, but it's nevertheless a possibility. So when we say cryptocurrency, it's not just, you know, we're talking about private assets. It's also a question of architecture. And so in the world of CBDC, architecture isn't necessarily as much. And um, yes, thank you for that. I'll try, I'll try to stand closer. Forgive me. My mic is not as great quality as it should be. So in any event, um, what I'd like to do now, then, is talk a little about what we in the U.S. government are doing. Eric mentioned the executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets that just dropped yesterday. And so I'd like to talk a little about what we're going to be doing there. Um, can everyone hear me fine? You're great. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. So what we see in this is truly a holistic approach, not just to digital assets, to include cryptocurrencies and stable coins, as Eric mentioned, but also the benefits of a potential CBDC. We see a basic policy statement that a CBDC in US usage, it needs to be able to, one, support high volume of transaction at low cost, two, be as safe and secure as a dollar in your pocket, and three, should offer distinct advantage to consumers and businesses over the status quo. But most critically, beyond the consumer and retail implications, administration also notes that any CBDC needs to reinforce the existing role of the dollar in global finance and trade and secure America's position as the linchpin of the global financial system. I know we'll get into some discussion later of the digital yuan and the and, and competing cryptocurrencies, but the concept here is that if there is going to be a U.S. CBDC, it needs to positively reinforce U.S. position in the system. So the question is then, what's going to be done? Well, as part of the executive order, Treasury will produce a report within 180 days, broadly on the future of money and payments, but with particular respect to CBDCs. And you will expect to see topics in that, such as CBDC implications for national interest, implications for financial inclusion, relationship between CBDCs and crypto, future sovereign money, impact of foreign CBDCs on global payments, implications for financial crime and national security, and broad impact of CBDCs on U.S. interest. 
And we're also seeing continued direction for the Federal Reserve to continue work they've done, particularly the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston alongside the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, looking at the technical feasibility behind CBDC, what needs to be done to design that, and also having the Attorney General look at what new authorities, if any, would be needed to issue a CBDC. Now, speaking from the commerce perspective, what we are charged with in this process is looking holistically at the U.S. digital assets landscape and promoting it as a global leader. So that certainly will touch on efforts for CBDCs, but also particularly in terms of digital asset-based businesses. So what do I mean by that? You can think exchanges, for example, Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, others like that. You can think of some of the new things we've seen with DeFi lending, also even more centralized lending, such as BlockFi and Celsius. Essentially, how do we promote these businesses in an increasingly competitive global marketplace? But moreover, domestically, how do we ensure that as we develop this as part of our economy and part of our financial system, we're doing so to maximize other objectives, such as, for example, how might digital assets reach un and underbanked Americans? What can we do, for example, to see that digital assets support climate transition? So I'm really excited by this opportunity because we'll be able to work very closely with industry, and I imagine some of you all in the audience, to really talk about how can we articulate a bold future for our digital assets industry that not only preserves our competition and achieves strategic aims, but also really gets at the heart of what is the best in America that we can realize here, and how do we take that to the world? So that's my very broad overview. Um, Nazaka, I'd give you that before back. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so we'll, uh, Steve and I will start with some um, additional questions to really start digging in even deeper. Eric, you and I have spoken quite a bit about your work and, um, you know, advising countries about their digital currency, which raises a very sort of fundamental question that um, both of you are touching on, which is, um, what does this all mean in terms of competitiveness, right? Where is the United States and and vis-a-vis -vis our uh, competitors, uh, our allies, maybe some of our adversaries in the rollout of digital currency? Um, who's moving ahead? Who's lagging behind? And ultimately, why does that matter? Yeah, so um, the U.S., I think, finally woke up. Uh, and I think it was... Uh, perhaps a function of, you know, Russia sanctions and concerns over money laundering over crypto, which I think might be a little um, overblown. But I think there were certain elements of our U of the U.S. government that finally just, you know, were sleepwalking and then they woke up and said, oh, my gosh, we've got to do something. Um, and, and I think um, there have been some elements, uh, as Colin mentioned earlier, some elements of the U.S. government that have been far ahead um, on the leading edge for some time. Uh, the Boston Fed, uh, in particular, uh, in a in a project with the MIT called Project Hamilton, has been uh, looking at this for for quite some time. Um, but the reality of the situation is, um, I think we're hamstrung for um, uh, compared to countries that don't have legacy infrastructure for and and legacy re regulators, right? Think of like um, a Venn diagram where you have 19 circles, like all. You know, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, agglomerating together on one issue, right? Um, and that's kind of what we're facing. Who regulates uh, a CBDC? Um, 
the OCC, the banking regulator, is going to have a stake, uh, or crypto writ large. Uh, the SEC might be a part of it. The U.S. You know, Bankers Association, the Fed, uh, Treasury, uh, Capitol Hill, right? And so you've got a lot of actors, a lot, uh, a lot of chefs in the kitchen, so to speak, but nobody has yet been empowered to take the reins, uh, I guess, until recently. So that's been one problem. And the second problem we have, uh, which you could call a problem or not, is that we have um, very sophisticated legacy financial plumbing, right? Infrastructure that's been around for some time and it's difficult to disintermediate. And you have lots of folks that are probably lobbying to preserve you know, what they have. Uh, and so the United States, for these two reasons, regulation and legacy infrastructure, have made it hard. And I think nobody owns this in, in the US government yet. So you don't necessarily have a champion. And, and because of that, um, uh, it, it's almost easier to start in a country that doesn't have any legacy uh, infrastructure issues. You might recall back when people actually had and used landlines, that there were countries uh, in emerging markets where it took 12 years to get a landline. And then cell phones came, came out and everybody just started using cell phones. And so it might be easier to work in places that don't have the legacy infrastructure issues that we do. Having said that, right, our infrastructure is pretty good, but it's going to change very quickly. So we better get uh, we better get our game on uh, because we need to really think through how to do a digital currency um, intelligently. And somebody has to own it in the U.S. government. So back to you, Nazak. Hey, let me ask you a quick follow-up question, Eric. Um, is, does China worry you in terms of where China is? Uh, is that a rhetorical question? No, <laughs> like, it is knowing you personally, but uh, maybe to the audience. <laughs> well, I mean, um, in, in case it hasn't dawned on anyone, China has gone from, you know, China has gone from being a competitor to adversary to perhaps something more than adversary. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, having lived in China, uh, uh, my own personal disclaimer is this, uh, I am a fan of the Chinese people and the culture and so forth. Certainly the, the cuisine, uh, I'm not a fan of the Chinese communist party. So with that disclaimer, uh, out there, uh, my take is that China has been very uh, forward-leaning on the ECNY or the DCEP or the Digital Renminbi. It's got many names um, for quite some time. They've been at this for eight years. And I would argue that what, there's, what they have is a, uh, is a surveillance mechanism disguised as a payments um, scheme. And so... Through the use of the digital renminbi, the People's Bank of China, the PBOC, is going to be able to peer into everyone's transaction. Uh, and you know, you might say, "Well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, well, you, you know, what do I care?" But do do you really want the government to know everything that you're buying? If I buy a case of wine, maybe I'm having a party, or maybe I'm an alcoholic. I, I don't know, right? But do I want the government to be able to monitor my transactions? and see what I'm doing. And that's what China is doing. And this has, you know, it's, it's got some very 
serious repercussive issues for, you know, for human rights, uh, for uh, um, freedom. And if you believe that China uh, is uh, a country that's good at exporting stuff, which they are, think about what the consequences are if they export the digital renminbi technology and social credit score to places like Venezuela or Iran or North Korea or a whole host of authoritarian regimes. It's going to uh, perpetuate authoritarianism um, around the world. And finally, uh, if that weren't bad enough, China is developing its own version of SWIFT and the CHIPS um, clearinghouse. Uh, it's called CIPS, SIPS. Uh, and there may be a point in time where the digital renminbi through the Chinese uh, uh, payments infrastructure uh, eclipse the dollar uh, as the world's reserve currency, or maybe we create a multipolar reserve currency situation. Uh, but clearly that's not good um, for the United States. And you might think, sure, look, you know, Eric, you're kind of exaggerating. The dollar is the dollar. You know, the renminbi is only used in a, you know, a small minority of transactions. But um, having lived in China, you can't just take a snapshot of the situation and assume that it's going to stay static. You know, look at it in terms of a, a motion picture, like a video camera, where things are evolving every day. And yes, the renminbi is a microscopic portion of, you know, settlement uh, in the global system, but it's not assured that it won't be more important down the road. So anyway, sorry to go on my long soliloquy there. Back to you, Nazar. <clears throat> no, that's perfect. That's exactly the soliloquy um, I wanted the audience members to hear. So I guess there's actually kind of two ways we could segue from there. Maybe we'll end up going both ways. But um, my, my first question, I guess, is for both of you, which is on the supremacy of the dollar, how does the U.S. implementing a CBDC allow us to protect that and, and sort of push back against maybe the Chinese taking over on that and, and, and sort of just the nuts and bolts of how that would work? No, sir, certainly. I, I, Colin, I, I, yeah, I, I have sound now. Sorry about that. No, certainly, Eric. I'll start off. Um, yeah, no, Steve, let me, um, let me answer that first with drawing a more sort of, you know, like a case study building off of what Eric said, a very real thing. We're all very familiar with BRI, or however you want to call it, in terms of Beijing exerting increased economic influence, not just Asia-Pacific, but increasingly Sub-Saharan Africa and to a degree Central Europe as well. So let's take this scenario. There's the Addis Djibouti Railway that the Chinese just built not too long ago and that the government of Ethiopia is officially paying back. So let's say that the operating company, you know, they have a derailment or whatever. They need to replace some equipment and some trucks here, a few um, pieces of rolling stock here. Under the current system, they could pay in in, uh, in renminbi. They could also pay in, do in dollars. That would take some days to settle going through traditional. Under a digital renminbi, for example, they could require use of that, which on the face of it might appear to have some commercial advantages for, for the uh, target country. You could affect the achieve settlement in minutes, depending on how the structure works. But add the coercion element of that to that. Could be that as a requirement of contracts built such as this, you might require the use of digital yuan. Now, spread this out over time. More and more companies on the ecosystem. What you essentially have is the potential for a sort of bifurcated global payment system 
one that's a traditional system as we know it, you know, SWIFT, very much influenced by the U.S., our allies in Europe, etc. Another one that is very closed, run by the run by the People's Bank of China, denominated in digital yuan, and with all the technological aspects of that, you can control access to it, shut it off instantly. That alone stresses the need for the for U.S. leadership in this area, and why a development of a U.S. CBDC ultimately is something that, speaking personally, I view as inevitable because. We need to be able to answer that. We need to be able to offer an alternative. And if the sole product on offer for countries looking at digital currencies, just a hypothetical, other than China, you know, you could point to countries in the East Caribbean, East Caribbean that have adopted that with the stand dollar in Nigeria, they're viewing the e-Naira. The future is now on this. The question then becomes, what is the prevailing model that we want to see? And as such, will depend on on being able to effectively compete in the digital currency. Um, Steve, actual question, does that does that get to it? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah, terrific. Can, and Eric, yeah, I was going to say, if you have any thoughts as well. Yeah, if I can amplify that, uh, Colin, I couldn't agree more. I um, mean, it's time for the U.S. to, um, to show um, leadership. Uh, and a bifurcated payment system um, could include a world in which you have a constellation of authoritarian governments led by China and Russia, which, by the way, is happening, uh, has been only exacerbated by the current Ukraine-Russia crisis. The sanctions and getting Russia off of SWIFT have, have only pushed Russia in, and China together even more to the point where um, uh, a parallel payment system led by China and Russia and a constellation of what I would call bad actors will be over here. And what are we offering in return? The, a concern that I have, which I saw um, at the World Bank, uh, was um, what I think we used to refer to as debt trap diplomacy. I'm not sure what the term is now. But um, you know, China has lent um, a considerable amount of money to a lot of countries along the Belt and Road whether it's Kazakhstan or Uganda or Sri Lanka. And when governments can't pay, uh, China extract, extracts its pound of flesh. In the case of Sri Lanka, it was the Hambantota port, et cetera. Now, it's not inconceivable to see a situation where um, countries that owe China um, are incur encouraged, um, quote unquote, to use the renminbi, uh, the Chinese payments infrastructure, uh, and um, they would be encouraged to do so for a couple of reasons. One is they owe China a lot of money. And two, China, at the end of the day, is the largest customer for what many Latin American and Sub-Saharan uh, countries produce, right? Whether it's copper or soybeans or oil, China is the customer of last resort. And so China can, in effect, sort of twist their arm and say, you know, why are you settling in dollars? Why not just settle over our new system? And if China is able to export the digital, the tech stack for their digital currency to Uganda and Argentina and, you know, whatever, uh, I think that the dollar could come under increasing pressure. And it's something for U.S. policymakers to really think about. Eric, this is um, this is one of the reasons why um, you're touching on, you and Colin are touching on one of the reasons why um, Steve and I wanted to have this webcast because um. The, the reality is, is that we are in 
um, economic war and the issue is only going to get worse. Um, digital currencies are being weaponized. And what I think companies really need to understand, and I'd like to hear both your and Colin's views on this, is this is really about global, this is really about competition. This is really about the race for global market share. And as um, some of our adversaries are using digital currency and trying to roll out more and more digital currency as a coercive tool and as a way to tie their markets together with some of our allies, that it's not, it's, it goes beyond a currency issue. It now displaces U.S. companies from access to those markets, is the way I understand it, because if um, our allies, maybe um, our uh, uh, South American uh, allies, Latin American, Caribbean allies, are now being coerced um, by China to use their digital currency and only use that, that displaces us, our companies, from having access to um, key parts of the world in terms of doing business. Um, and then, of course, the implications that you've touched on, which is um, digital currency being used um, in a coercive tool beyond just economic competition. If the central government of China, for example, doesn't like the way that the digital currencies are being used by a user, they can just shut off their access because that is what you can do through digital currencies. So maybe you and Colin can elaborate on some of these issues from the standpoint of your work. Over, over to you, Colin. No, certainly. And I mean, I think, Nazak, you really did. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Just lag here. No, you really did hit the nail on the head there. That, And this gets back to one of sort of my favorite sayings on the issue that a colleague of mine uh, once dropped over coffee, is that digital currency, fundamentally, its values programmed into money. And that's really a lot of the issue that we're facing, you know, looking beyond just the sort of the macroeconomics in terms of how much volume is done in payments in USD versus digital yuan, looking beyond even sort of, you know, the broader geopolitical implications, the fundamental question of values. What are the values that we want to see encoded in the international financial system as expressed through digital dollar versus what are the values that the Communist Party wants to have put out there through the digital yuan? And as you say, and this gets back to what we were addressing earlier, Digital payments are here whether or not we want to admit. Case in point, for example, um, M-Pesa in Kenya, I believe that got started around two, the 2006-2007 area. Digital payments via your phone. You could do text banking via your phone. I distinctly remember the vending machines in my high school not even taking credit cards. So in some ways, for many of these emerging markets, as Eric pointed out, they skipped a generation and have gone ahead. They're looking at exploring these solutions at their own speed for a variety of reasons, be it it can help with increased financial inclusion, it's cheaper to do than traditional infrastructure, etc. But they're looking for models out there. And so that's why U.S. leadership in this space, and particularly the executive, President Biden's recent executive order, are extremely timely because it gives us a basis to go forward, to start to recognize there is a competition out here. There's question of who's going to carry the day. And what can we, as the U.S. government, in concert with our partners in industry, civil society, all of these great people in our ecosystem, what can we do to make sure that American values carry the day? So I think really, in a way, that's sort of the fundamental question that we're dealing with. It's not just a question of commercial competition or coercion. It fundamentally gets to what are the sort of basic first principles that you want to see in the global financial system, and how do we achieve that? through our work on CDCs.
Eric, over to you. Um, uh, Colin, you, you said something that I thought was very profound, and that is that digital money is, to to a large degree, a value system that's been programmed right into into a currency, uh, and uh, the the value system in China, uh, uh, as per the CCP, is about control, monitoring and controlling um, individuals. And you can say, well, maybe they just need to do it because there's a very large population and they need to, you know, I'm not going to argue why or how, but at the end of the day, it's about control. Um, and I would encourage us, uh, as we think about issuing our own digital currency, to program um, our own value set into it, uh, into our own into our own technology, um, because we can't uh, compete with China by being more like them. Uh, and and this, this should not be a political issue. Uh, this is a, a, an issue about freedom. So, um, but imagine a world where uh, we had our own digital currency uh, and policymakers decided that they could decide how I spent my money or not, right? So perhaps, you know, policymakers were uh, interested in, I don't know, uh, um, um, uh, 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 climate, the climate issue. You know, uh, perhaps my future digital U.S. dollar shouldn't be used to put gas in an SUV more than twice a month in the interest of protecting the climate. Again, I'm not going to argue whether that's good or bad, right? But it, it points to the fact that in a, quote, pseudo-benevolent government, uh, uh, a, future, a future U.S. administration might be able to tell me what I could or couldn't spend my money on. Uh, or maybe, hey, I just had a filet mignon last night. You know, what are you doing eating filet mignon where poor people have to eat hamburgers, right? So your money is only good for eating filet mignon, you know, twice a month. So these are the kinds of issues that we need to think about, and they shouldn't be uh, partisan issues. Um, this should be about giving people the necessary freedom and privacy uh, and um, limited oversight from the government, right? And we do, by the way, have Fourth Amendment rights that prohibit the government from illegal search and seizure. Uh, and, you know, uh, should they be able to cancel me in a, in a, in a future world? And so, again, I'm pointing to nightmare scenarios, uh, but they're important to talk about as we um, as we program a future digital currency with our, our value system. Having said that, you know, we also have to be very cognizant of the fact that we we need to have a certain level of oversight to prevent money laundering, drug dealing and, you know, illegal activity. And, and I think we clearly understand that there's a fine line, but we also have to have privacy and freedom imbued in, in our, in our system. And if I could just tack on a little to what Eric just said, you know, what this question, particularly of privacy and what right should the government have to be able to see what you're doing with the CBDC, that really gets into a lot of the questions around what we call intermediated versus disintermediated. There's some folks who have suggested, uh, particularly on, particularly on the left, that we should look to have a disintermediated CBDC, i.e. the Federal Reserve creates consumer accounts directly. I could sign up with the Federal Reserve, have an account, businesses could have an account, everything would transact on the Fed ledger directly. In contrast, the other model, what we talk about with an intermediated CBDC, it would essentially be offered through your current financial institution. So IFPNC, for example, 
in that model, I'd be able to go to PNC and be like, I'd like to set up a digital dollar account and we'd be able to do that right there. And one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of discussion, particularly about the advantages of intermediation or using legacy institutions are twofold. One is that on the AML and other sort of countering illicit activity front, we already have a lot of tools in that toolbox there. We have the Bank Secrecy Act. We have any number of regulations that allow that to happen. So then that way, it would be much less of a sort of culture shock to simply have digital dollar accounts as part of that. But furthermore, also, it's just a question, too, of comfort and familiarity. You know, there's a lot of people who, you know, might be might be a little um, uneasy at the idea of having an account directly with the government where they transact on a daily basis. What's the assurance then that, you know, the government won't, as Eric said, for example, decide, hey, you can't have filet mignon this month or something like that. In contrast with a private with privately intermediate accounts through your bank, you're pretty confident today if you go and if you buy buy a steak, you buy a case of wine or whatever with your BOA or Chase um, your Chase debit card, they are going to record that, but they're not going to tell the government. They're not going to pass that on to the government. That then might raise some more consumer comfort with this area. And based on what Chairman Powell has said publicly, and again, this is just sort of you know based on what we can see in terms of the limited things that have been said publicly. The idea, at least with the Fed, is that more likely than not, if there were CBDC in this country, it would be done using a lot of the legacy framework that we have today, current financial institutions, et cetera. Obviously, that's not to preclude innovation, but just more in terms of where we might see that go. Yeah, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse um, uh, with respect to privacy and, and values, um, but things that were um, unheard of uh, recently uh, are, are now somewhat commonplace. Uh, uh, whether you agree or disagree with uh, the trucker convoy in Canada, right? Um, and I'm not going to get into that discussion. I think we can we can all agree that freezing bank accounts uh, of, of of citizens uh, is a is a, is a serious overreach, uh, and then you know subsequently um, you know affecting somebody who donated more than $25 to the trucker convoy. So these are things that are taking place uh, and um, without, you know, you know, ascribing judgment as to the validity or not of the trucker convoy. I don't want to get there, go there, but um, in a country like Canada, uh, the fact that you can, you know, theoretically go into the banking system and freeze people's bank accounts should uh, scare all of us. If we believe in um, freedom, civil rights, uh, and, um, and, and, and a lack of government intrusion. So these are things that need to be embedded into any future U.S. central bank digital currency, if only from the practical reason that people are just, if they see that the government can take away their, their money, they'll just use cash, right? Or they'll go into Bitcoin or something else. So the more draconian we become, and if we become like China, then we may as well just, you know, go into some alternative form of payments. And that would be disastrous for the United States. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Colin. So this has been um, this has really been fascinating and time is flying. Uh, so, and we have some very good questions from the audience. I'm going to ask one more before we turn to those, which is just what is going to be the role of the international money community, World Bank, IMF, as more countries go to digital currencies, how does that role change, and 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 how does their importance change, if at all, 
if uh, the U.S. in particular, but other countries start to go toward digital currencies. Eric, do you want to start maybe from with your background might be helpful for you to start? Uh, yeah, sure. Look, I mean, you need to have standard setting bodies. Uh, I think the the leader in this is has, you know, has traditionally and continues to be the Bank of International Settlements. Um, but um, I think the standard setting bodies are going to be very important. Um, and um, uh, just like you have a common set of standards for lots of different things, uh, there should be a common framework um, for, for central bank digital currencies. So um, I think the Bank of International Settlements has done a lot of work on this. Uh, and, you know, it behooves all of us to go into their website and see all of the various projects um, that they're working on which include everything from a, you know, a multi-CBDC bridge, uh, you know, Forex payments. Uh, they've done quite a lot of work on how CBDCs can influence and affect monetary policy. Uh, they've done some really good work. So um, my hat's off to them. Colin, anything else to add on that? No, sure. I mean, I would just concur that, you know, the real big role for these big international orgs, you know, particularly BIS, as Eric mentioned, they've done a lot of absolutely fantastic work on this, but also, you know, standard setters, OECD, you know, IMF, etc. A lot of the questions then are going to become, one, how do we ensure interoperability? Because obviously, if there's a digital dollar, digital pound, digital euro, whatever you want, you want to make sure that we can convert and transact in these as, at least as easily as we can today, if not better. So there's a lot of questions about how do we ensure technical compatibility? How do we speed up settlements? So there's a lot that can be needs to be done on the architecture side, but also too, you know, in terms of discussing best practices and getting back to what we were discussing earlier with the values question, you know, in terms of what should we, what can we as G7 countries, as U.S. and like-minded partners, etc., what can we say about how CBDC should be developed, how they should work with existing systems like electronic payments or even cash, how can they all work around that? You know, really sort of coming up with best practices for those who do want to work. So when you have emerging markets in particular that look to adopt CBDCs, they can see, you know, okay, there's the Beijing way of doing it. And then there's the, you know, and then there's the U.S. slash like-minded country way of doing it. And the more that we can offer in terms of a more concrete vision of what a CBDC ecosystem looks like that has buy-in from partners, I think that'll just really sort of help build the case for when our firms go over there, bid tenders for pilots or whatever, we can really make a case for we have a complete vision of what this will, of end state, if you will, of what this will look like. I, Colin, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and we also need to be aware of the competitive landscape. Um, I think the, um, the Chinese government um, uh, has a very long range plan for uh, how to become a reserve currency, if not the reserve currency, uh, and um, uh, and we need to come up with an alternative. And the alternative should be, uh, look, we don't want to be in a situation like we have been with Huawei, right? Um, and uh, you know, I, I spent you know a, a long time at the World Bank trying to convince governments, as you know, representing the United States, uh, look, um, government X, Y, and Z, Huawei could potentially be a security risk for you. But by then, it's too late, right? So we don't want to be in a situation where five, six, seven years from now, um, the technology stack that's coming from Beijing and exported around the world uh, is um, 
is, 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 is incapable of being replaced by something else because we don't have anything. So I would encourage uh, the U.S. and like-minded to get together uh, and to form a common set of ethical standards uh, and perhaps even a common set of technical standards and open source it. Just put it out there on GitHub and allow central banks around the world uh, to use it in a very transparent manner. Uh, uh, because it, I, I think waiting is going to be uh, disastrous for us unless we, we need to show leadership. Very well put. Um, we, waiting is going to be disastrous, and the United States has historically led, so we got to continue to lead um, and really set the tone for the rest of the world on, on, on how, to, how to do this in a fair and responsible way. Um, gentlemen, we're getting a lot of very good audience questions, so um, I think we should turn to those now. Um, and we'll start. Uh, I'll kick it off with the first audience question, which is, um, do the speakers have any thoughts or comments on El Salvador's experiment using Bitcoin as a legal tender? And let me tack on an additional element to that question, which is, uh, you know, Russia and sanctions and, and trying to get around sanctions by using various types of uh, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, what what are other countries doing for for various reasons and how effective is it? Over. I can talk about El Salvador, uh, Colin. If you want to hit the Russia sanctions, um, uh, I spent um, uh, quite a bit of time in El Salvador when they launched La Ley Bitcoin, uh, and um, it was a little bit of a of a Charlie Foxtrot um, initially. Uh, you know, it was a it was a bit chaotic, let's just say. Um, and uh, that was then. Where they are today is sort of like this: um, uh, four million people or so have an app on their phone in El Salvador. It's called the Chivo Wallet. C H I V like Victor O Chivo. Uh, and in it, people might have fifty dollars worth of dollars, and then in $50 worth of Bitcoin, right? Um, every, uh, every merchant in El Salvador is required to accept dollars and Bitcoin. Uh, and so I go to McDonald's and I buy a Big Mac uh, and uh, they ask me, do you want to pay with dollars or with Bitcoin? I have both on the app on my phone, right? And it's, um, it's just, if I want to pay with dollars, I show my dollar QR code. If I want to pay with Bitcoin, I do that. Now, 4 million people are doing this. Now, what it's done is it's upended the existing payments infrastructure, right? So Visa and MasterCard rails are getting disintermediated, uh, as well as the, um, the remittance rails through Western Union and MoneyGram. So it's been kind of revolutionary uh, in El Salvador. Do I agree with using Bitcoin? I mean, as a means of medium of exchange? I don't know. Like today it's 38,000. Yesterday it was 65,000. Tomorrow it could be 2,000. Heck, I don't know. But something that fluctuates that much doesn't seem to be a wise choice uh, as a medium of exchange, as a store of value, perhaps. But um, El Salvador has done some very interesting things. Whether I agree with them or not is very different. And could Bitcoin could Bitcoin be laundered by transnational criminal organizations? Sure. I mean, there are ways to do it and to launder money in very sophisticated ways, even though Bitcoin is pseudo anonymous. Uh, 
but with respect to Russia, I mean, I'll, Colin, you can take that. I, I don't think you can launder the GDP of Russia, you know, in crypto. I mean, it's just the market isn't big enough, but that's my take. <clears throat> no, and I would absolutely agree with Eric's point on that, that one thing that, and um, I, of course, do want to clarify that with respect to exchanges and other sort of fiat to crypto on ramps, these organizations, by and large, have been very receptive to working with OFAC and other agencies throughout the world that handle sanctions in terms of making sure that sanctioned entities and individuals don't get on that. So industry has stepped up on that, and we see there's no reason why they wouldn't be willing to partner. But talking more at the conceptual level about, about you know, sort of sovereign evasion of sanctions using crypto, as Eric said, it's really an issue of scale. So... Last week, there was a lot of discussion, particularly about the sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia and how that means it can't access reserves. So rough numbers, $630 billion in CBR reserves, of which about half was USD and Euro, so $315. Not, sorry, not, no, hell no, not $315, $315 billion, much, much more. In contrast, the entire market cap for Bitcoin, and mind you, this was going off last week's price, so this could be a little different, would be $832 billion. And so then the question becomes, could you effectively acquire about a third of the market cap of the world's largest crypto and use that to launder money? Technically, yes, but practically speaking, if you believe that, I have some waterfront property in Arizona to sell you. It's just one of those things that at the sovereign level, you simply can't scale it up enough to scale it up enough to do that. Now, what we could also talk about with crypto and sanctions evasion, and Eric, this might be something that'll uh, pique your interest uh, from Latin America. We saw in 2018, 2019, uh, Venezuela talking about the issuance of the Petro. So essentially a local crypto that would be tied to oil reserves, oil prices in some way, and that could then be circulated and ideally converted essentially to get around a lot of financial sanctions. Problem is, though, you still can't buy the Petro outside of Venezuela. It doesn't trade on any open crypto markets. So there's really no proof that there's any kind of meaningful way that you can use it to get access to dollars that you otherwise can't. And if anything, I mean, we know with Venezuela, for example, the only use case so far has been planes flying into Caracas have to pay for their fuel using the Petro crypto. But otherwise, it just seems to have fallen flat. So I think for a whole host of reasons at the sovereign level, trying to use crypto as sort of a silver bullet to get around sanctions isn't really workable. Now, that's not to say that at the individual level or the company level, you couldn't have some efforts there. But those are things that are already eminently covered by the by the by sanctions regimes. Yeah, the biggest concern to sanctions evasion, it's not it's not immediate, but down the road is the Chinese alternative to SWIFT and CHIPS and Fedwire. Right, which is called SIPS. Uh, if if China develops this thing more fully, uh, um, they and they own the global payments infrastructure. If we allow that to happen, uh, then all bets are off. But I agree with you 100. percent Crypto, the crypto market's too small. But in a way, with SIPS, that then also gets back to the importance of U.S. leadership and why the executive order is so timely, because. Ultimately, the only thing that's going to make SIPs more attractive is if you get partner banks willing to participate in Western countries outside of the Chinese market for the time being so that you can still do conversions into USD and Euro. In, 
that's why then that from a U.S. perspective, the more that we can do to articulate a U.S. vision of CDC and work with our partners on that and essentially reinforce what we have with SWIFT and other existing payments rails, that'll simply do a whole lot better in heading off the challenge from SIPs. Totally, totally agree. But, you know, at the end of the day, money talks. You might recall uh, in, when was it, 2015, China created the AIIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, to finance Belt and Road projects. And uh, we encouraged countries not to do it. And yet, you know, you have hundreds of, of countries that are, you know, a part of it now. And so, you know, at the end of the day, money talks. So we better, we better, um, we better get our game on. Uh, and show, show some readership. Anyway, Nazak, back to you. So another audience question, which which you may have answered in, in response to the last question, but I, I think it's worth bringing up again. Do you see do you do you see the development of cryptocurrencies eroding faith in government entities in favor of decentralized anonymous organizations? Maybe Colin, if you want to start this one. Sure, sure. So, no, it is a great question. And, you know, from sort of getting into community jargon, you get a lot of this quote from sort of like the maxis. Basically, you know, the real sort of like hardcore Bitcoin folks who are like, no, we can't have anything that's government regulated. We whole point is to get out of state control. A lot of real ties to libertarianism on that. But I think what we can then say is, OK, how does the average John Q consumer get access to crypto? 99% of the time, they're going to be buying through exchanges directly. So through the Coinbase's, the Gemini's, the Binance's of the world, those are in effect registered entities that particularly if you're operating in the U.S. are already sort of subject to government control. So I think in a way that for the most part, your average retail investor is aware of the fact that, hey, at some point on here, there's going to be a government touch on this. And so I don't necessarily see the development of crypto per se as eroding faith in government and favoring uh, decentralized organizations or DAOs. And what I would see instead, though, is that you're going to see more sort of a, a harmony, if you will, that the more that we approach, and this is, again, the approach you can see in the executive order, the more that we look at digital assets such as crypto as a holistic part of a financial system, the more in a way we might start to treat, uh, treat say, Bitcoin, for example, as an asset akin to gold. You hold it as a store of value, you buy that, it has a place in your portfolio, but it's not this sort of like magic cure-all for all the ills of the modern state going back 200 years or some of the more libertarian types would say. So I think in the long run, we're going to see more of a sort of happy coexistence between crypto and other aspects of the financial system. Um, Eric, I'd be, um, would you, yeah, if you want to add on that. Yeah, this is a philosophical discussion about uh, centralization versus decentralization. Um, and um, I think it's uniquely American um, to be somewhat skeptical of government and, and government control. In fact, our, our founding uh, fathers uh, so hated King George that they created a centralized, uh, sorry, a decentralized form of government such that, you know, it's a little bit messy on purpose so that you don't have a king telling you what to do. Um, and I think that's a unique, uniquely American thing. Um, and so, and then of course, you know, wave after wave of immigrants fleeing totalitarian regimes and, you know, and, and autocracies have come here only feeding that, that fabric of, of American society. That's my opinion, right? Uh, now, 
Um, centralization means you have a central point of failure and also a central point um, of corruption. That can be said for anything. So uh, what if social media, uh, what if you liked or disliked something? What if you sent a tweet that was you know, deemed offensive or, or not? Um, uh, Facebook and Twitter have the ability to uh, to centralize. Uh, there, there's a centralized form of control that can change narratives depending upon what the overlords at Facebook want to do on any given moment. Um, now, decentral. I think a future world will include decentralized exchanges, decentralized social media, uh, and um, and, and decentralization uh, is, in my opinion, democratizing, right? It's, uh, you don't have a central point of corruption or a central point of failure. That's a broad philosophical discussion uh, as, to the, as to the exact you know, answer to the question uh, about you know, uh, crypto. Look, it depends, right? If, if governments uh, exert more and more control over the people, it's only going to move the people into decentralized um, applications and decentralized money. If the government sort of, you know, takes its foot off the gas pedal a little bit and gives people more freedom and autonomy, then there won't be that need. And a lot of it, uh, I'll end with this, it goes back to trust, right? Do you trust that the government is looking after your best interest? And if you do, uh, then there's, you know, then people typically don't go to these decentralized things. Uh, but the reason, the whole reason for creating a decentralized decision-making system, as in the case of Bitcoin, is because of a lack of trust. That was a very insightful point. Um, we have, gentlemen, we just have a, a couple more minutes. So um, I just wanted to get to one final audience question, uh, which is very relevant right now. Uh, we're dealing with historically um, high levels of inflation. Uh, an ever-expanding U.S. federal budget deficit and an expanding balance sheet, which tends to devalue the dollar. Um, how helpful is a digital dollar if the dollar keeps losing its value? And how can we leverage uh, sort of this executive order to craft a digital dollar in making sure that we're ensuring stability? Uh, Colin, maybe we can start with you since you're working on the executive order. No, certainly. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll have to uh, defer on a lot of the monetary policy questions to colleagues of the Fed or Treasury who are infinitely smarter than I am in a better place to answer that. But with respect to, you know, what it means in terms of the benefit, I think even if we set aside what we see now with inflation, with, you know, longstanding questions, many of which are political about the future of the federal budget, the fact of the matter is the dollar is still king in global finance. And much of that is because, again, U.S. is, you know, we are a good creditor. We always pay, we always pay on our debts. We are respected as a for many soft power reasons. We also still have significant economic and military power. That fact of the matter is just there. So that sort of power is then what translates into the dollar. So we know that that position is there, and that there's a lot to maintain that going forward. I think that the question from our perspective as the USG working on that is. How do we ensure that the reputation that we've already created for ourselves and the position that we have today as the um, linchpin of the global financial system, how is that preserved going into the future? And what steps can we take to design a digital dollar to ensure that the digital dollar will enjoy the full confidence of the current paper dollar? 
So I think it really does get to sort of like that question about basically continue leveraging our existing reputation and essentially digitizing that, if you will. But um, yeah, that's that would be my take on that. Eric, I'd be curious to hear your views. Yeah, look, I'll try and be brief. Um, uh, I think it comes back to trust and faith in the U.S. government. Um, uh, my personal perspective is, you know, uh, we've been extremely irresponsible. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Fed's balance sheet is whatever, eight, nine trillion dollars. Our, our debt levels are astronomically high. Uh, and, and we've had this exorbitant privilege of being able to have ridiculous current account deficits uh, and fiscal deficits uh, because um, of the faith in the U.S. dollar and the fact that the dollar is the means of, you know, uh, uh, of settling, you know, 80 plus percent of FX transactions, much of which are in natural resources. So you've created this artificial demand for dollars in the world because, you know, you've got to settle your oil in dollars in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the day that the Saudi Arabians decide to say, hey, look, 50 percent of our oil is going to be settled in renminbi, we are up the creek and uh, we will not be able to finance our current account deficits. Uh, and um, there's going to be a big question mark over, you know, the faith and credit of, you know, the, the, the insolvency of the United States. So we better we, we better not just get the central bank digital currency thing done right, but we also need to fix our uh, extreme irresponsible behavior when it comes to managing our country's finances. Thanks so much, uh, gentlemen. Look, I I thought we knew some things about digital currency going into this. Uh, this was so much more uh, eye opening, and we're so lucky to have both of you um, help educate us and our audience. We appreciate your uh, incredible insights. We appreciate your incredible perspectives, um, Honorable Eric Bethel and Mr. Colin Lee. Um, look, things are happening. So we look forward to continuing these discussions, having you both join us again, if you will, as these issues continue to develop. On behalf of Stephen and myself and our entire firm, thank you again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected Podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.